Jonathan. I'm Amanda. I'm Kay. And, and this, this is Comics Verse. Hello, hello, hello. You are getting the privilege and honor of listening to another fantastic Comics First podcast episode. I'm Kay, intern turned contributor and occasional production coordinator and sass monster. And I'm joined by a subpart of fantastic cast of people to talk about the very much underrated image series Nailbiter. Nailbiter is an ongoing series written by Josh Williamson and drawn by Mike Henderson. Now, some of you might be familiar with Josh Williamson's writing for series Birthright. And if you haven't heard of him or seen Mike Henderson's art, y'all are missing out big time because it's great and read a damn book for once in your life. Before we jump into today's episode, listen to the sultry sound of my voice plugging Comicsverse on all social platforms. Don't forget to check us out at our website www.comicsverse.com, your source for in-depth comics analysis for great articles, video reviews, and other great podcasts that may or may not have led you to listen to this episode today. Also, we're on facebook.com slash Comicsverse. You can follow us at Twitter and Instagram at Comicsverse and a Tumblr group under Comicsverse. Keep a lookout for for our YouTube channel, Comics First TV, for more awesome video interviews with your favorite writers and artists from NYCC 2015. Finally, download and listen to all our other Comics First podcasts at Spreaker, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I think I'll just go ahead and speak for everyone in saying that we would love any kind of feedback or support from you, viewers and listeners, so don't stop loving us by any means. And if y'all are haters, that's cool too, but don't be quiet about it. Okay, so let's get into the disembodied voices you're going to be listening today to discuss Nailbiter. I'm your host, Kay. Kay Honda, I'm sorry, the most, I'm probably, no, yeah, I'm your host, Kay Honda. That's something that's certain. Okay, so I'm probably the most likely to get off track, according to my peers, uh, friends and family alike. Um, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I'm making myself laugh. Okay. But it's not about me, guys. It's about you. Uh, just kidding. It's about Nailbiter. So we're going to go around in a circle to talk about Josh Williamson and Mike Henderson's image series, Nailbiter. And we actually have some newcomers today. But before we get into the new sexy people in the group, let's talk about <laughs> Matt. Oh, hi, everybody. I'm Matt. I'm an old intern. I guess that's my job description Yeah, you're now. old news now. Oh, I'm an old person. All right, so what have you done recently for us? Uh, I was on the Lazarus podcast as well as the New Mutants podcast. Uh, you can find me reviewing random assorted books on Wednesdays, and I don't know, I feel like I complain a lot on most of them. If it's Gem and the Holograms, I'm cheering loudly and obnoxiously. Would you say that, well, okay, so what's your favorite comic that you're reading right now? Oh, favorite comic that I'm reading? Oh, I was just thinking about this more. It has to be I Hate Fairland by Scotty Young. There is no other book right now that I... Like, I just put it down and I'm smiling. It's like an old school cartoon and just is twisted, but perfect. Go buy it. Right now. Go, what right is it now. Called? What is it called? I Hate Fairyland. I Hate Fairyland. Oh, see, that looks too campy for me, though. It's not campy. It's it's flawless. But we're talking about Nailbiter, so that's my that's my small plug. But we're moving on. Okay, cool. So the newcomers that we have today are Jonathan Helmke. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. How are you? You came from Long Island, correct? Yes. Awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and familiarize yourself <laughs> to comics first? Well, uh, my name's Jonathan. I am in my senior year at uh, in Dowling College. And uh, I'm hoping to be one day a comic book artist slash writer. Uh, I'm majoring in graphic design and minoring and creative writing so uh it's damn that's the dream so far <laughs> oh my god i totally understand that's pretty much exactly what i want to do but <laughs> i'm many years ahead of you so that's <laughs> embarrassing for you <laughs> um but yeah like 
just in terms of so you want to be a comic book artist and writer do you know jeff lemire and his, oh yeah god he's a god right yeah. yes i mean i love that man i yeah. actually wanted to say uh i'm reading uh descender yeah it's amazing i, I, I cover love that. it it's, it's so amazing. good it's i so good even the art style i really admire because mm-hmm. just uh the way he uses uh colors it, it's great even the story is great i mean it's it's just an overall good uh comic book it's something different for yeah. me because I'm used to reading uh, superhero stuff mm. but uh, something like this is very refreshing yeah and also I just like the fact that Jeff Lemire even though he totally can do his own art he chose Dustin Wynn to do his art for him and I'm glad that he's doing collaborations because it's just like he's just a good storyteller art like you know he's stylistically and artistically himself but you know anyway that's not the point but <laughs> thank you you're my new favorite person <laughs> all right so i'm definitely gonna butcher amanda's last name so she's gonna have to say it for me but amanda is also a newcomer and she's um a very special contributor she is also from columbia i think yeah awesome and um yeah, she scores high marks in comics verse right now. She's awesome. I feel really bad that I can't say her last name. Can't uh, get to letting her introduce herself. But okay, yes. Yeah, that too. She also edits for us. Um yeah, so Amanda, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, my name is Amanda Anya Benny. It's a little Anya Benny. different from what it looks like. Yeah. I do go to Columbia. I am in my last year of my master's in the American Studies Department. I focus mostly on human and civil rights, looking both outward from the U.S. and looking inward in terms of civil rights and disability rights. So yeah, I work on how we, the public learns about civil rights and how they're carried out. Oh, wow. That's really awesome. You're so important. This is so weird for me now. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm so incompetent at everything. All right, here we go. Thank you, Amanda. I guess my next question, just before we get started with Nailbiter... Actually, let's start with Amanda, because I know this. Amanda, you were saying that this is the first comic you've ever taken or you've read ever. So what were your thoughts on it just as like a first comic book reader? Yeah, I was definitely a little nervous coming to this comic, having not read any before. However, I have to say that I really did appreciate it. I felt that it was accessible to people who were in the comic book world and people like me who were just coming in. And I really did appreciate the different layers and the different narratives and characters because I felt like you could sympathize and empathize with many Mm -hmm. of them. And it kind of gave a little entry point to how we think about certain issues that are very prevalent in our society. Mm. Like, I would like to think so, too. We'll see. We'll, we'll discuss it later. But Jonathan, what about you? What about me? What about you? Like, did you? Um, well, just because I guess explain your experience with comics and then, you know, because obviously you want to be a comic book writer and mm-hmm. slash artist. So kind of what are your interests in comics and what did you think about Nailbiter in general? It's interesting how I got into comics. When you say comics, I uh, think of both uh, manga and a regular American comics. So uh, I guess technically in a way it started in fifth grade. The first comic I read was, or I should say manga, was Naruto. And uh, I really loved it. And um, from there on out, I would, you know, I I wasn't really like an avid reader of comics, even manga or (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sorry. But uh, anyway, I go back and... What, what just happened? I don't, <laughs> I'm stuttering. I, no, uh, you're fine. Okay. I would go back and forth between uh, reading it and, you know, take a break. But it wasn't until uh, college where a new comic store comic book store opened up and I uh, took a walk in and the uh, first thing I decided to look for was Spider-Man because I really liked the movies and ever since I read that first issue I was hooked. Nice. I do not like Spider-Man but <laughs> I will not hold that against you. Lots of people like Spider-Man. This is not the podcast for that but <laughs> yes understood. That's awesome though. So like it's cool that people are coming into comic books at such different stages in their life I feel. So to go into that, Matt, when did you get into comics and what did you think about Nailbiter? I got into comics when I was uh, around 15. I mean, I read manga previously. I was really into like Black Hat, D. Gray Man, Death Note, but I, I didn't really get into comics until uh, one of my friends came in one day and he had a copy of Mark Miller's Ultimates and he was like, Matt, you got to read this. And it blew my goddamn mind. I was like, I was amazed and I've become a hoarder ever since. There's no more room in my house. It's just... It's just comic books, but I really, I my experience with Nailbiter was I, uh, I remember when the first issue came out and it was just the guy, the cover really drew me and I was like, what is this book? It's crazy looking. And I picked it up and it drew me in immediately and I, I, I fell off because I pick and drop uh, books off monthly mm -hmm. as it is, but I, yeah. I was really drawn in by Nailbiter's covers are what always draw me in. Like, I know when issue 13 came out, uh, they had, like, the classic Archie-looking cover uh -huh. of uh, Warren and Sharon Crane on their prom date. I was yeah. like, oh, man, that's so cute. I need that in my collection. And I that's what drew me back in. Yeah, that's totally valid. And it's funny because a lot of the cover art is pretty stylistically similar, except for that one. And I don't know if... I guess it's because it's the beginning of the... Or, like, yeah, it's the beginning of the arc just covering uh, Shannon Crane and Warren's kind of relationship to each other so it is interesting because that's the one that totally stands out out of all the covers is the archie cover but anyway to i think we might stop for a second all right before we get started i'm gonna have matt murphy here give us a brief summary about what nail biter is about all right so first and foremost we're we begin our story with uh nail biter edward charles warren and he is the nail biter he He's a serial killer. Uh, he chews people's nails until he reaches the blood, and then he murders them. Yay, fun times. Hooray! But he's the first character we're introduced to. Then we're introduced to um, a character called Finch, and uh, we're first introduced to him as he has a gun up to his head, and he gets a call from his friend Carol, who's like, I, f I figured out the deal with the Buckaroo bit Butchers, who are um, a group of 16 uh, serial killers that are based in the town of Buckaroo. And from there, we're basically introduced into Finch trying to solve uh, what happened to his friend Carol, Sheriff Crane trying to figure out what's going on in her town of Buckaroo, Warren trying to explain to the entire town why people become serial killers in Buckaroo. And the whole series is basically around trying to find out why there are serial killers in Buckaroo. And it's very interesting is the interpersonal character relationships and how everyone deals with each other, as well as seeing how the history of the town reflects on how other people see the town. That was beautiful. Thanks. You're welcome. And it's time. That's the only compliment I'm going to give you this year. 
All righty. So we're going to start with segment one and just talk about some pretty basic character analysis, our thoughts on the nail biter characters. And the three characters I wanted to focus on today were the nail biter, which is Edward Charles Warren. He's He goes by Warren in the story. Uh, Nicholas Finch, who's kind of this aggro and angry extraction cop. And Shannon Crane, who's the sheriff of Buckaroo, uh, Oregon, right? Yeah, Buckaroo, Oregon, where all the serial killers are born, theoretically. So just to go into that, my first question was going to be, is Nailbiter really the main character? And anyone who wants to start can go right in because I don't know if I agree that Nailbiter is the main character. And when I say Nailbiter, I mean Warren. Well, for my reading the first 18 issues of the series, I have to say I think uh, Buckaroo is a city is the main character in a similar way to how Scott Snyder writes uh, Batman with Gotham being a, the one of the prominent characters is that we never we don't really have a protagonist of this book. We we start out with Finch, but we also start out with Nailbiter. Every character has their own part in the story, but we don't they all interact. They're not they're all secondary characters to the main plot and the main story is Buckaroo. What is Buckaroo's history? What does Buckaroo have an effect on these characters and how is it going to end? How are we will there be any resolution to the serial killer issue? And I think that's the main thing is that we're this story is an exploration of the town. So the town has to be the protagonist of the story. That's actually a really good answer. That's really interesting. What do you guys think, Amanda, Jonathan? I think it's kind of misleading, the uh, first issue, when you look at it. I mean, it's called Nail Biter. You get the idea with the guy on the cover of it biting the nails, and then you find out in the first few pages Warren is the nail biter. But as you dive deeper into the comic, it kind of lures away more around him because he does, he is one of the Buckaroo Butchers, but he is also a part of, I guess you could say, I don't know if cult's the right word or a family because he is, what is he, the 16th, I think, Butcher? Yeah, he's the 16th. Because it also, the story also does focus on other Buckaroo Butchers Mm -hmm. as well. And as we keep learning about all these different Butchers, we start to get closer and closer to the question, why does Buckaroo spawn all these serial killers? But I don't know if we get even closer to the the question though because it's just kind of like we learn that's what i was saying earlier too like we we learn more about the phenomenon of the serial killers being born or quote-unquote born in buckaroo oregon but at the same time it's even though we learn more about it the nature of the phenomenon i don't think gets cleared up even like you know even though matt and i have read the third story arc we are we have more information revealed to us but it still doesn't it doesn't it doesn't make it clear so it's interesting that Matt, you said that the town was the main character and how, Jonathan, you were saying it's misleading because I don't typically I would think that stories need a main character or need a character to follow. And for me, I thought Finch was more of a main character than Warren. So, Amanda, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think we do need to take the author's intention into account. And at the end of the first episode, We get him explaining how he wanted to look at the serial killer through the people around them and learn about what makes a serial killer through the people around them. So I think that we that it is kind of misleading and it can and our judgment can be clouded because we are learning about the serial killer. And so I think the identity of serial killer is the main character. Mm, Interesting. So it's almost less because that's actually a really good point because the 
you know, the series isn't called Warren or it's not even called Finch. It's not anything like that. It's called The Nail Biter. And that is kind of the identity Warren is given in the story. And as we all learn when we read into it, Warren sometimes doesn't even live up to his serial killer identity. I think it's interesting that you call, uh, you say it's the identity he was given because it's not something he'd always have wanted. It's like an irresistible, like, thing he needs to do like he sees a nail bleeding and he needs to do it he needs to do it like he he never wanted it. he wasn't it was given to him like we don't know who gave it to him we don't know why it was given we don't know if it's psychological his problem but we it was given to him so i guess just to kind of clean up that uh segment do you guys think that like i guess what are your thoughts on Detective Finch and Sheriff Crane within the context of Warren and without him. Because I just worry that I personally feel like they kind of become non-entities if they're not involved with Warren in some way. But I don't know if you guys feel differently. So just think about just the characterization of those two and how you feel about them. Do you think that they're strong characters? I feel like Sheriff Crane is a strong character. I feel like she's dealing with the whole running the police of her entire town while she's her her the public knowledge that she dated uh warren and they were the prom date and she was the last person who saw him before he left to become the nail biter it's always around like it's a she has to wear that on her shoulders like she always carries it with her but she manages to maintain her position she does it well and i think uh we're slowly seeing cracks to that and i think it's interesting because we're getting to see more about her but i think i actually think finch is the weakest character of the entire series because i feel like the most thing we've been giving about him is like oh man finch he's a loose cannon he killed someone while he was interrogating them he reacts with his fists more than he reacts with he's i feel like what we've been given from finch is that he's a stereotype of an action character so far and i know we're gonna get more but i feel like we haven't he's been the least fleshed out but he's the first character we're really like explored and i feel like that but that's kind of why I like him, though, because he's so polarizing against Warren. They're both, they both are guilty of killing people. But I feel like Warren is, more, Warren is more engaging, and we've gotten more history from Warren than we have from Finch. What we've really gotten from Finch is we start with his, uh, the person he killed, and we end with the person we killed Like in the recent issues. We just, we just haven't had any answers. Yeah, but we did learn that he wasn't supposed to be in Buckaroo because he was supposed to go to his trial and he didn't go because he was trying to kill himself in the beginning of the first issue ever. You win this round, Kay. <laughs> okay. But I just mean that Finch is so like, because he obviously on the surface to me, he's like you said, like just the very typical action hero, like loose cannon, you know, dirty cop, but he gets the job done or like whatever. But at the same time, like I feel that it was so necessary for him to be in this in this comic because he need you know Warren needs something that something or someone that is polarizing to him and you know even um when i feel like there's a section but the way even what's his name carol carol who finch goes looking for when he goes missing in buckaroo carol's notes describe warren as just like a modern serial killer just a very boring young white male intelligent charming but emotionless just like the modern day psychopath and so i feel like warren also plays into that stereotype of being that kind of serial killer where do you know what i mean like they both play into this kind of role of being 
stereotypical versions of themselves. That's why I think it's interesting to talk about the characters because is it even about them? Because they're just kind of playing up a role. Yes, Jonathan. <laughs> I actually, when I see Finch, I see a, a bit of a mix of Carol and Warren between the two. Because Finch, like Carol, is uh, n- not a detective, but he is in that field of uh, where he has done similar things as detective work. But then at the same time, he uh, has that relationship with Warren where he has killed someone. So he does know the feeling of what it's like to take a life. So... It's, I don't want to, I kind of like Finch, but I don't want to say he's uh, a stereotype. Maybe he is. I don't know. But I mean, so far I like him. I think he's a pretty cool character. There's anyone who I think is a stereotype. It would probably be, I don't know. I have to think more on that topic. Yeah, but that's the thing. Like, again, it, you know, every stereotypes come from, I don't want to say a truth, but stereotypes come from something that is, you know, a repeated image or repeated identity so i think that it is valid to say that warren and finch kind of play into their roles of uh, at least originally they play into their role of like oh i'm like the charming antagonist and i'm like the loose cannon protagonist and you know as we all see after we read into it it becomes a lot less certain who or like where anyone stands in terms of like moral compass. And I think that Shannon Crane is probably the closest we can get to a moral compass. But even that is a little flawed. But what do you think about that, Amanda? I think Crane is probably the most multifaceted character because we do get this history. She was very emotionally attached to Warren. And we do get sides of Warren that don't normally fit what we think of a serial killer we think evil we think sickness and he's kind of funny and he does help out the other characters when it comes to finch i almost dislike him but i do like his place within the story because as you've said jonathan he has also killed someone but i think it forces us to look at how we excuse finch's killing because he's in a point of authority and we have to think of Warren as a serial killer, which is a negative, sick identity. Right. And I think that that's why it's also important that I'm glad that you brought that up because Finch is, I think, supposed to be unpopular in terms of how he's characterized. Like, I think I agree with you that he is important in the story. Like, there are many characters that I enjoy purely because they fit into the story well. But if I met them at a party, I wouldn't talk to them because I don't care. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, definitely. You you know, because the uh, Cyclops effect. Yeah, exactly. The Cyclops effect. Exactly. Because I don't, you know, Cyclops from X-Men. He's I understand his role in X-Men. That's great. I just don't care. Like, if I met him, I wouldn't be excited. If I met Wolverine, I'd be super excited. Always Wolverine. Well, I mean, or X-23. She's cool, too. Just a quick uh, question. A qu- yes. Uh, what do you guys think uh, a serial killer is? Because it's mentioned by mm-hmm. Carol that a serial killer is someone who's killed at least at the bare minimum of five people. Mm-hmm. But is a serial killer also someone who's psychotic or can it be someone who is perfectly sane? Like, remember, uh, I can't really say it. I've only seen parts of it, but American Psycho. I mean, mm-hmm. he, what's Oh, we're going to get into that, <laughs> good sir. But, I mean, it, it fits into the characterization of the of the character. So, Matt, did you want to add something to that? I really think, uh, from what I've gotten from Nailbiters, that everyone has a thematic style of killing. The blonde, uh, she murders people who catcall her. The good Samaritan, he calls people on the street, help, 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 and then he murders them. The, is it the WTF... Uh, the W2F killer, he kills people for art. Like, everyone has their own style of killing. They kill people for their is own Is it a way. style or is it a gimmick? 
I wouldn't even say it's a style because I feel like in Buckaroo, murders a uh, murders such a recurring thing that everyone has to have their own identity with it. They identify with a certain style of murder, right? And that's why it's like you know we talked about how we get desensitized by stuff like that. They have like a murder store. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like they have a store that's like get isn't it the, the killer con they were trying to pet? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's a whole thing, and that's oh, we'll get into that later, but. I think that will be the end of that segment. Alrighty, so we're going to start segment two, which is just going to cover the story or the arcs for Nailbiter thus far. I guess my first question will be open to everyone. There seemingly is um, no one villain in the story. Uh, It's not even a villain per story arc. It doesn't really seem like it's very clear on who the quote-unquote bad guy is. And I'm wondering if you guys agree with that and uh, what your feelings are on that. I don't agree with that because I feel like we're clearly introduced to the bad guy in the first the first story arc. He's We don't know who he is. He's off panel. But we, we know he, he manipulated the murder of Hank. And also, was it Robbie his name was? Hank yeah, and Robbie. Kid, yeah. And we don't know if it's the guy in the black mask. We don't know if that's also the villain we don't know who's the separate villain we just know someone in buckaroo is manipulating people to either kill people manipulate situations or just take out the serial killers in general but do you think it's one person or a group of people because at this like even as you were saying oh remember so and so killed so and so i was just like who like it could have been anyone there's just so much death in this book that i I almost can't keep up with how many deaths or who is responsible for which death so it's almost impossible to decipher who the villain is because it's just like okay somebody killed somebody at some point (laughs) I think it's separate groups. I think that everyone has their own agenda in this book. We'll never know who's going for what reason and why. And that we've been introduced to so many characters. That's what we've been talking about, that there's so many characters in the book. You can't figure out who's the main protagonist. We don't know what's going on, but we know that multiple hands are at work. Everyone has their own like story. And we're not going to know what's going to happen until... We know what's going to happen until the story ends. So I think there are multiple villains, but we know there are multiple people at work right now. I think that question is kind of interesting because reading it, I don't see any of the butchers as villains. And I think it's mainly because we don't have something or someone to blame for why Buckaroo is the way that it is. And so I think the way that we don't know who the main character is, we also don't know who the villain is because it's hard to place blame if so many people from this one area have turned out this way. And then we get the scene where the bus driver is trying to save the children and throw them into the river and the young girl stabs him she can't be held responsible yeah. so it's it's hard to find a villain when you don't know who's responsible for the way things are turning out mm-hmm. i definitely agree with you amanda but when i think of the villain i it's hard to say because even uh, warren i can't really classify him as a villain because of uh two things one he's saved finch and carol which i don't think a a villain would do but then again at the same time he has had a history with carol he probably could care less for finch and two he did mention at some point that he would never kill one of his own and when he said his own i think he had mentioned uh or was implying anyone from buckaroo so i mean would have i would i would classify him as an anti-hero because 
an anti-hero like Deadpool or, or um, even I think Magneto now because a lot of the villains are getting their own comic books and I think it's because in a way they've all done some sort of heroic thing that some people agree with but not everyone. So I'm gonna for now classify him as an anti-hero but less on the hero more on the villain part. Okay because like I actually have a question about I guess the hero versus villain dynamic. Obviously good stories take classic dichotomies and kind of mess with them and with nail biter i'm not i don't even know what kind of story to classify this as because i can't i want to say horror just because there's so much death in it but yeah so i guess if anyone has any inkling of how to describe this story how would you or even if you had to pick a genre aside from horror like what kind of story is this or is it a story I'd say it's a mystery story is that we're always uh, at the end of like every arc. There's a new mystery. Like nothing has been solved. It's just literally nothing has been solved. It's just we get a new mystery every time. And it's just it, ma- it makes it more interesting because you're never going to know what's going around the corner, which also makes it a horror because we never know when the next time we're going to jump like I did during the what's the what's the reverend's name? The reverend's name. See, I don't even remember. Like, there's too many people that die. Uh, when the Reverend bites off Carol Stubb. Oh, God. Uh, that but no, was a like, thing. You never Gross. know. Like, <laughs> it's always a mystery, but you're always, you don't know what's around the corner, and it's going to terrify you, and that's why I think this book is so, like, it's so enduring. Like, you, you, you don't want to put it down. Well, I guess, like, my, just a add-on question to that, you know, Similarly to what Amanda was saying about how because we can't decipher who the hero is, we can't decipher who the villain is. And if none of those things are clear, then what is it? Like, because even when I'm tell, okay, like if you describe a story to someone or even if you're relaying a story that happened to you or a memory, there's a main character, there is something that happens to the main character and then it's resolved. Like that is what a, that's just basic storytelling. And how is it that Nailbiter can achieve being a story and existing and being interesting without having those very basic elements of, do you know what I mean? Like, because we have an antihero, but it's not like Deadpool where you're like, oh, look at him, like hijinks, like this is great (laughs) and it's funny, but Nailbiter is funny and weird and really creepy, but who's the main character? Nobody knows. And I I guess it goes back to you saying that it's kind of the place itself that is the main character, but I just never see that anymore. Or I mean, I see it in movies, but I think that's a little different. So I guess what are your thoughts on that just because i don't know how to feel about it i don't know if it's a bad story because it's unclear or if it makes it so much better because or if i don't know if that's even a qualifier but what matt was saying earlier before the podcast had started was uh buckaroo can be associated it's actually similar to gotham from batman it does spawn it's a place that spawns a lot of evil and bad things but i guess the difference between the two is that there are some people in gotham that didn't technically grow up in gotham and i don't think it was the city itself that made the people evil but i think maybe the people that made the city evil itself but uh that can't be said about buckaroo i mean it's the i guess we don't know yet but buckaroo is the place that made the people or the buckaroo butchers who they were but uh i think it's still too soon to tell wow you fucked up (laughs) <laughs> I think that's interesting because uh, what I think in the third volume they introduced the fact that uh, a handful of serial killers were brought into Buckaroo to like I think it was did they breed the town basically because every uh, 
every Buckaroo Butcher originates from some of the original serial killers that were introduced in right. the town. Well, that's why it's so weird because it's like... No, but that's also, if you look at uh, the people in the background, like the people manipulating the situation, like the people who took away the guy with the bees, the people that brainwashed uh, Agent Barker, we don't know if it, there's clearly someone, there's clearly people who have psychological issues that are passed down throughout the town, like they're generational things. We see that, like uh, Amanda, I know you spoke of the girl earlier who uh, stabbed uh, the bus driver Crow in the neck. Like you could see it in her face, like she she, she loved exactly. every minute of she it. She knew exactly what and she was doing. That's passed down. That's generational in the town. But there's also the people that have clearly been manipulated in this situation, like uh, Warren. It, Warren has implied in the, the story that he wasn't always like this. He just mm. wanted to know the secrets of the town. Yep. Barker has these violent Visions, yeah. hallucinations yeah. that she is going to murder people. And it's not even like a And it's not just like it, proximity, yeah. And like it's consistent. Like... It's over and over, and it's also implied in the last issue, issue 18, that what happened to Finch, that Finch murdered this person, that he had the same, like, headache, hallucination, and that's what ended up, he ended up murdering this person. We don't know what's coming on from this town. We don't know what's going on. But we, don't, we don't even know if every impulse that, or any impulse, or I guess any negative impulse that the characters are having are all coming from Buckaroo or not. And I think that leads into my next question that'll close out the second segment about the story. Just like this concept of death and violence, I guess, because, you know, we've discussed how it is a funny story and there are like silly parts in it. But because there is no set hero or villain it's, it also kind of draws the question of like, okay, well, what makes a hero or a villain? And as we were talking, I was just thinking like, when is it permissible to hurt someone or kill someone? And that's really unclear, I feel like, or it, it, that question is made so controversial in this story, particularly because people you wouldn't expect to hurt someone hurt people and people you don't expect to save people do. And it's kind of, you know, not to get, I guess too like culturally reflective or like reflexive about it but it's kind of like do we even have heroes and villains in life either like because everyone's capable of doing the same things good and bad so that's kind of a question i would want to explore further with this story so amanda do you have anything to add yeah i think one of the things about this story that makes it so eerie is the fact that it doesn't pin responsibility on one person yes we do know that the butchers seem to carry traits from earlier generations but we get the sense that these are human qualities that we are all capable of being a villain of being a hero of being somewhere in between and I think that's what makes the story so hard to diagnose and so hard to pin in a corner and I do remember Crane says one quote and I traced it back and it's a quote from Nietzsche and it says he who fights with monsters should be careful lest he thereby becomes a monster and if thou gaze long into an abyss the abyss will gaze into thee and it's it speaks it's to this so idea good. it's it's great but it speaks to this idea that we're all capable of doing horrific things right. heroic things and we can't be pinned into one corner because mm -hmm. these are human qualities right if we're going on quotes here i'd like to say uh I forget the actor's name, but in Batman The Dark Knight, Harvey mm -hmm. Dent says, you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain, uh -huh. which I think holds some truth. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> does. What about you, Matt? I think the most interesting thing, uh, I think Warren's trying to 
like redeem himself because I think he still loves Sheriff Kramer. We can see it in the scene where he sneaks into her house and she's he's underneath the bed and it's her hands not- over the bed and he like blo- he like kisses her fingernails like he doesn't like bite it. It's like, also it's- so weird because he like draws a portrait of her in his own blood and it's like ew but that's cute kind of like he's weird. just like so devoted to like making like up his image to her and this image for this town like he knows what he is he like but he hasn't killed since like he's trying to and it it gets to the back of like this the the idea of control like he he clearly has a sense of control like there's something that sets him off but like he wants to he wants to make up for it and there's like a a redeemableness in the monster but it also means like i think we also need to get a better view of the other 15 bucket butchers because we don't know it's like is it an is it an illness or is it an addiction like what is it and you were mentioning brainwashing at some point like we're still okay we're 18 issues into this series and we still don't know <laughs> which so it is. many questions yeah and oh. like i mean that's what i like about it but yeah. just just let the record hold or show me and amanda have only read up to issue 11 so we can only go on oh <laughs> that, yeah no but you're gonna read more of it and still be like i'm gonna expect text messages from each of you don't being worry like, being like i'm text. still I don't know still <laughs> is this supposed to be true and it's like, I messaged you last night I was like yo this comic is gross <laughs> yeah it is gross but it's also awesome I don't think that I look for any answers though I, I don't point, I don't think yeah. I'm expecting to see clear-cut answers of why things are the way they are how people got to a certain way mm-hmm so yeah, I don't, no, I don't know if I'll be disappointed. Yeah, that's fair too, because I think that after a certain point, I'm sure Matt and Jonathan would agree, after a certain point in the series, you kind of think, oh, well, I guess this is just how it is. And, you know, comic book writer Bendis makes a cute little <laughs> cameo. <laughs> cameo, And you're just like, okay, so this is just not going by the books at all. And you just roll with it. So, um, yeah, that'll finish up the, or, well, yes. Matt, do you have something to say? Uh, I had like a quick thing about the are we, the Bendis thing, unless you want to... Oh, that's probably that. going to be for themes of murder, culture, and mythology. All right. You shouldn't be we'll recording this we'll right now. Ooh. Okay, cool. let, let me throw something in. Okay, right throw... Yeah. I, I actually think that... I know that we said in the beginning Nailbiter is a, um, a comic book that hasn't gotten a lot of recognition, but I think it kind of follows in the footsteps of The Walking Dead. That comic book started back in 2003 mm. and didn't gain notoriety until 2009 when they produced the TV show. So I think this might even, I think this could be a great TV series. Oh. Ooh, like every other image book <laughs> yeah. that's in development right now. Oh, God. All right. On that note. <laughs> All right. So on that note, we're going to jump right into segment three. And we're just going to go further in depth into the themes that we've been talking about of murder, culture, and mythology. And we've already discussed how the Bookaroo butchers almost don't seem like villains or anything because it's part of the history of the town and there's been 16 killers buckaroo is also known as the town for serial killers or that birth serial killers and i guess to just start us off to warm us up into the segment is uh let's talk about that pregnant lady who wanted to give birth to a baby in the town so she could have a famous serial killer son let's talk about that for a second pass okay pass what? <laughs> I mean, I wasn't all that surprised, to be honest. Interesting. Because you also get the scene with the school bus and the kids, and they're talking about the 
serial killers as if like who is your favorite one oh I like this one because of A, B, and C and even in our culture today we I don't want to say glorify serial killers but we have countless shows of them we have a new show I don't know what it's called but they try and trace what makes a serial killer and for some reason in the American society we're fascinated with this violence and so to me Mallory seems like a pretty feasible character in our life Uh because she just wants to gain from this popularity. They've been turned into celebrities. Right. Just look at the Kardashians. (laughs) Well, I mean, okay, but they're not. I know, but still, they're really no I don't know if that's comparable. (laughs) They're just annoying with big butts, but okay. (laughs) Yes. Well, I passed because I didn't remember the character's name and I didn't want (laughs) to. But now that I know her, I, I remember say her that. name is Mallory. We don't need that admission. Sorry, guys. But I think I think the most Ma- interesting Matthew for me... Murphy. He's on Tinder and OkCupid. Go look him up. <laughs> oh, <laughs> You're the is worst that true? Gay. No. Yeah, it is totally true. <laughs> I believe our host. He like he looks like a dad. <laughs> he looks like a dad. Everyone go find him. He's this great. is turned into the roast. Uh, the roast of Matt. Uh, Putting my dating life on spot. But all right, moving on. <laughs> I feel like the entire issue with Mallory was a, a commentary on Alice being like, there are crazy people in this world. There are people who are, they're at the the last edge. They feel like they need that one thing in their life to make them. Like uh, Mallory wanted to, her son to become a uh, serial killer so she would become known. She would be able to make money from it. And it ended up, she ended up living a happy life, but it was more or less Alice being like, hey, like, like, uh, there are some people who get that opportunity to be like, hey, like, this is my breaking point and I can move forward. And Alice feels like she was born into a situation that she, she can't control. She, she was born in Buckaroo. She is the next killer. Like in her mind, she, she doesn't know if she's crazy. She doesn't know if she's losing control. She just knows that there's something in her that's different than other people. And she doesn't know what to do with it. Okay, so just to go off of kind of that analysis on Alice, do you think that just in general in also in this series, but also in our culture, we, for whatever reason, glorify or kind of create this relatability with serial killers or just killers in general in many different ways, like TV shows that we know and love, but also do you think that relatability is created because, or I mean... What am I trying to say here? I think, um, why do you think that we fixate on the phenomenon of serial killers? Because there's like Manson and Ramirez and lots of serial killers that had huge followings. Even the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, Mm -hmm. huge. And like, obviously, everyone's a sucker for a good story or a good mystery. And I get that. But is it because we want to humanize them in some way or understand them or we feel relatability there somehow because we're like oh well I've had feelings like that too but I have a sense of control and I wouldn't do that because I'm a good person like what do you think that all is I have to say it's the for me and especially while I was reading the comic it was the sick relatability like uh when Crane uh when they talk about they just busted the blonde like she's like I love her like she's the most relatable person like if you were uh, a woman now and there's a woman like you were catcalled and there was a girl going around murdering the people who catcalled her they're not gonna be like you know what like that man those people are like they make me feel bad. They make me, they reduce me as a human being and there's someone going around changing that. And like the thing with the serial killers is that you, you can relate to a bunch of them and it's it's kind of sick when you think about it. Like, oh, like I, I find myself relatable, so 
the what the fuck killer like i can i see myself making art out of people like i wouldn't i wouldn't be that guy but like not that i personally would do that but like you could there's always something you can find relatable in some person you right. can always relate to their views and i think there's that's like a, empathy yeah it's the sick thing about murder like and serial killers and thing you're like you know i could do that too i just won't wouldn't yeah exactly that's really interesting I also think that as a culture, we've been pushed past our threshold of, I guess, understanding of violence or tolerance for violence. It's everywhere. If it's not in our shows or in our movies, it's what's going on throughout the world. And we're constantly pushed against these images and these stories of extreme violence and i think we're just used to it and i, mean, I don't look at fucking hunger games yeah that's a kids quote unquote kids adolescent right. movie and it's so violent absolutely it's so dark and they also and it's funny because hunger games was originally supposed to be a like a parody of what we are doing as a culture to the culture of violence and all of that and it's just it's, just, it's become yeah it's a culture feed, of violence yeah. in itself yeah it's just feeding into itself and that's really interesting because it also reminds me of movies like natural born killers or tv shows mm-hmm. like um jonathan mentioned earlier Ooh, like dexter, dexter. yeah <laughs> dexter and making you know, a serial killer or someone with a personality disorder or some someone who's, you know, mentally ill, kind of relatable or even Hannibal, uh, which is literally a show about, you know, Dr. Hannibal and how he's relating to this um, investigator who's also kind of an outcast in his own way. And it's kind of this weird relatability to that outcast feeling. But then that's so complicated and like, it's weird because you don't know how to feel about it, but it's so culturally already inherent. So what do you guys think about that? Oh, I, I was going to say I, the reason why I think a lot of people try to either root for or relate to the serial killer is because of the way I think Hollywood makes them out to be. I mean, like we just said, Dexter, I mean, by day, he is a, you know, a regular guy leading his job. And then by night, he's a serial killer. But he's in a, he's a serial killer who kills other serial killers, bad people. So it's like, oh, yeah, you know, he's he's the good guy. But it makes you think twice talking about it. Who really is the good guy? Is it the police department who's trying to catch, like in season two, the Bay Harbor Butcher, who technically is him? Or um, right. is it Dexter who's, you know, he has stopped a lot of bad people who have slipped through the cracks and have been released into society. But do we call him a serial killer for killing serial killers or? Well, that's the thing. Like, it's what I mentioned before. Like, when is death excusable mm. or when is pain excusable? Because there's a character on Dexter as well who's just like, I see through all of your shit. Like, he's, you know, I forget his name. Which Sergeant is so Dokes? Yeah. yeah. Dokes is just like, I, I can see right through you. There's something really up about you and i'm gonna figure it out and everyone you've had everyone else fooled but i know that there's something messed up in you and you know dexter's just trying to assimilate himself so there is sympathy there but there's also at least one character in any of the stories who are just like this is wrong but then again dexter's origin story he uh in a way he was born in a pool of blood when they found him his uh, mother was murdered and so and he even had a, a... Me and Amanda's face right there were like, what? <laughs> oh, yeah. I was like, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he had a brother who wound up being the ice truck killer in the first season. He was also a serial killer. So this kind of begs the question, are people... Is it something we're born in? Is it something that these people are born into? Or do we have to witness it at a young age? Because when people are very young, they're very susceptible to things. I mean, that's interesting, too. I think that... 
it is about it. It's a little bit of uh, of nurture and nature, you know, with anything. I well, that's what I believe. Maybe that's a little too um kind of general, but I think also in terms of just violence and murder, in this is definitely not the first. This is definitely not the first book or series that kind of touches upon what we're doing as a culture in terms of kind of being desensitized by murder and violence, and then not only that, but kind of capitalizing on it a little bit even if it was just um like making them into celebrities like i just think about natural born killers because you so root for them but they're awful people but then they're also faced with equally if not worse people who are supposed to be cops or you know civil not even civil rights activists but like people who are supposed to be there for the people and it's kind of that relatability you just think oh well i guess then it's justifiable because they feel that way I, get, I, I don't know where I'm trying to go with that. I think I'm just equally confused as from when I started about where I stand with all that because what is a moral code even? But I think uh, I find that interesting because you're also like you're noting into the idea of the celebrity like, uh, oh, Kim Kardashian did this, so I should do this. Oh, like Matt McConaughey drives a Lincoln. I should drive a Lincoln. Like you're also going into like, like serial killers have this amount of infamy infamy with them but they also have an amount of celebrity with them like they're known their public like knowledge like oh they did this i could do this and it it's all goes around the same thing because it's all it's all fame it's all about fame it's all about oh this is in the news i want to get noticed let me do this and it's it's sort of an endless circle of like all right how can i become that person how can i become the next step of that person right and it's an evolving thing and it's actually sick now that you kind of put it in that perspective. well i mean because we live in a culture that idolizes people or like idolizes things idolizes people just you know because a lot a lot of us including myself just to speak for myself are sheeple and like it's really easy to just hop on a bandwagon even if it's just a fad or like we were just talking you're not a sheep k come on (laughs) but but i feel like to kind of go into like the celebrity element of it nail biter does a really good job of kind of in a very interesting way touching upon that because you know as we all know warren gets a chance to talk to uh bendis who's, you know, obviously a very famous comic book writer. And if it's okay, Matt, since you're right here, I kind of wanted to just read the dialogue because I think it's really important. Warren basically makes the comparison between them as creatives because I guess as a creative, you also have to know when to destroy something or to walk away from it. And Warren is like, I'm a huge fan, but, you know, we're both killers in our own ways. And Bendis is like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I think this is a really good thing. So I'll be Warren. And if you could be Mr. Bendis, that would be great. I've always dreamed of being Mr. Brian Michael Bendis. So I'm game. All right. So Warren says, you and I have a lot in common, Mr. Bendis. And not just that we share the whole three names thing, even though I don't think Bendis could work as a first name. Hmm. But we're both killers. What? You killed Peter Parker. Oh, come on. And Alpha Flight and Ares and Scott Lang and Professor X and Jack of Hearts and the Wasp and Hawkeye. Although you did bring some back. You even got to pull the trigger on poor old Uncle Ben with his ultimate ponytail. You know what you do and what I do is vastly different. All of those people were loved by others and created by others. They're fictional characters. Have you never cried during a movie because of the actions of a character or their deaths? If the characters are not making you react emotionally, then the writer isn't doing their job right. 
Exactly. The point I'm trying to make is that I'm glad it's you writing a book about serial killers. You might have ink on your hands instead of blood, but you still know what it means to kill. Many people have tried to write about this town and failed. Even I have come down with a case of the writer's block. I don't believe in. So you've said, but let me give you a tip from one writer to another. Don't go down the rabbit hole that all the others before you have gone down. And that would be? Eventually, you will find yourself not trying to find the why did the killers kill in your story. Instead, you will start trying to find the why in life. And the answers in a story are much easier to create than they are to find in real life. That train of thought is its own heart of darkness and will only make you lost in the dark of your story, that is. Uh, thanks for the advice, but since I have you here and you seem to be a chatty Cathy, I have a question for you for my comic. Fire away. Do you remember your, I guess I'll call it the murder moment? It's always fascinated me what happens in someone's mind when they go from thinking about killing someone to when they decide to actually go through with it. So yeah, do you remember when that happened for you, Warren? Warren? Yeah, so... That was deep. <laughs> no, but I love that quote specifically because I think that's what kept me going for Nailbiter just because I never would have made a parallel between a comic book writer and a serial killer. But what are you guys' thoughts on that? Just like in terms of a create one creative meeting another and also not having the resolve of how does it feel when you first kill someone? Because like that's all speculation for most people. I think as a comic book fan and as a Marvel fan for the last 15 years, I've uh, I've known that Brian Michael Bendis is a murderer of all hopes and dreams for any comic book fan. But uh, I think the thing about that is, is that Warren brings up a lot of good points. He's just like, well, uh, what makes you different than me? What makes you go down the rabbit hole? And I read an interesting article to get today on Cracked about uh, certain actors that would like uh, do terrible things or certain famous people that do terrible things. And one of the things was, uh, who played uh, Harvey Dent on The Dark Knight? Oh, God. That handsome gentleman that... the uh, I don't know. I don't well, know. we all know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. But, that uh, guy. <laughs> he played a character... Uh, he was playing a character in a film, actually, called The Rabbit Hole, where he lost a child. And he'd be going to... Uh, to sort of meetings with families that lost children and he'd pretend that he lost a child to learn and gain experience for his acting so that he could play the part as well as possible. Mm. And I think the That's cool like Fight Club too, but in a different way. Yeah, but Warren would basically uh was saying like Bendis, don't don't go down that road. Don't go down the road where you're so uh you're so obsessed with mm-hmm. uh how these people became how they are that you become doing it. Because I think and as we stated earlier, that's how Warren was when he uh right, right before he met Sheriff Crane. He was researching how to become, uh, what was the deal with this town and serial killers. He wanted to become, not that he wanted to become them, but he wanted to understand. He wanted to understand. And he fell too far down the rabbit hole. I mean, and similarly to Finch, that's kind of draws a strange question for Carol, the original detective who went to go research Buckaroo and also Finch, because clearly Carol didn't or we don't know, actually, but Carol didn't go down that rabbit hole necessarily in the sense that he didn't come out a serial killer, but he lost all his limbs. Like He came out a cripple. Like it's, but it like, and that's so horrible. And then now Finch is kind of in his place trying to figure it out for Carol. But why isn't, I mean, not even why, but Finch is getting dangerously close to stacking up numbers in terms of you know his kill count just because he killed one person and you know jonathan was saying that you know it takes more than like five people that you kill to like become a serial killer but isn't that scary that you know finch is just this dude who's trying to do something good for 
someone he cared about on the force and he's like he was already down that road anyway and instead he's now just a loose cannon in this kind of town that creates serial killers yeah any thoughts on that guys yes man sorry uh, <laughs> i think the thing is like if you look at issue number 18 the implications between agent barker and finch is that her headaches and her hallucinations of murdering people, of becoming a serial killer. Not a serial killer in sense that she just sees herself as a killer. Like, she loses she loses control. And she has that conversation with Finch where Finch is like, I just, I had a headache. And then I, wo- I woke up from the situation. He was dead. I lost control. And they both have that mo- She's like, wait, were you having headaches? Were you doing that thing? Like, like she wants to know, are they having the same experience? Like, did... Did something happen? Did he go through the same thing and she doesn't know about it? And, and we don't know, as we don't know all of the other answers to the questions from this book, but it just keeps drawing you in. But that's the thing. I think what Nailbiter does really successfully is kind of, I hate I hate using this word, but it's very meta or like very reflexive because, uh, I know, but what they're experiencing is kind of a... A dramatization of what we are experiencing as readers because we're like but we want to know what happens and like there's a certain level of like distance from it that we can engage emotionally with it without being like well i'm not gonna go kill someone but i like get the feeling but you don't self-analyze to the point where you know you're crying in your room or something or you could i don't know <laughs> like do your own thing whatever but, floats your boat yeah whatever it's fine but i guess um yeah i think that there is something really weird. There's a weird attraction about serial killers, particularly. And we're going to talk about that in the next segment. Alrighty, so we're going to go into the next segment, which is going to be about the artwork. Mike Henderson is, I think, an up-and-comer. And the art is really great. I really like it. And like I said before, I'm really vain. So there are times where I wouldn't pick up a comic series because I didn't like the art. And with this one, I really like it just because of how he incorporates the um, the sound effects into the panels. And I guess to start off, I really wanted to talk about something that was in the first trade when it's in the when they're all in it's not a mortuary no it's not a mortuary what is it called a graveyard no it's not oh, a no, morgue. no the morgue yeah a morgue. They're, yeah they're hanging out in the morgue because they were talking about hanging how out in the morgue they found, like they, it's found, cool. <laughs> they found <laughs> they found a body and they thought it was carol but it wasn't and there's just like this panel organization where it's literally just these pretty you know uh, horizontal panels for three pages or so and it turns off the lights and then it turns back on and only the computer screen is on and it's funny because to me that so reads like just any horror movie you've ever seen where it's just like oh no the lights are flickering what's happening and then there's a point where you see a figure and it, he, like every time the lights go out he comes a little bit closer and I did not think that this was something that could be executed so well in comics but it they did it a really good job on it, it was does anyone else have anything to add to that or Yes, Jonathan, please. <laughs> I uh, I really love the art style. And when it comes to reading a new comic, uh, the art is the first thing I look for. And this kind of drew me in because I really enjoyed another comic called Southern Bastards. And it was very reminiscent of that. Right. So, But also, on the other hand, there is the writing. So mm-hmm. I can't read a comic that has good art and bad writing or vice versa. It has mm. to have both. But I think this was a very good blend of the two. Yeah, and I think that it's also really important with comics just to have that almost seamless melding of uh, visual storytelling as well as the writing because I think that there are cases in some series where 
one art form carries the other. Mm-hmm. And I feel that Nailbiter does a pretty good job of. Yeah, no, Nailbiter does a great job. I'm not sure if the uh, cover artist is different from the main artist. I think... Because the cover art... I know that the cover art seems a little different, but the cover art's very nice. Like, the Mm -hmm. first issue of uh, Nailbiter, it was very detailed. And I'm not saying that the in the main story it isn't detailed but mm-hmm. it's not as detailed but there's a lot of emphasis on the cover but then again it's the cover you got to sell it somehow right okay what do you think matt i think it's uh well i was mentioning it earlier like i know um jonathan said it reminded him of southern bastards and uh, it actually reminded me of rob guillory on shoe and not in like uh i know chew is a very exaggerated book but like this is grounded in realism like his uh mike henderson i actually didn't know was a different person than rob guillory until i finished the actual story and i i don't know i really like his style i think he brings a lot to the book and i think he uh I don't think there could be any other artist on the book. Like, and I think that's a biggest thing and a biggest pull for me. If you read a, a book, like uh, I know when I first picked up Walking Dead, I was like, oh my God, Tony Moore brings so much to this book. And then you have Charlie Adler and Charlie Adler is good, but it, it's no Tony Moore. Well, I mean, I guess what I'm asking about with, or some questions I have about the art is you were saying that you couldn't see anyone else do it, but I feel like it's so interesting because I feel like the artist's choice was really important, especially in terms of how we just discussed how uh, there's so much uncertainty about how to label this story, how to label the characters and like what kind of story it is. And we they could have sold it as a just a purely a horror book if they wanted to. And they could have gotten something that or a, um, an artist that is, you know, very well versed in like horrific comics or something like that. But instead... I almost feel like the art matches up more with the strange kind of gallows humor that it has. And it almost, not to make it sound lighthearted, but it almost, it it opens the story, the written story up to being funny when it is funny, when it didn't have to, if that makes any sense. I have to differentiate with you there just for the fact that I think, I really think that it's a very humorous book. Not, wait, no. I didn't mean that. I meant it's a very realistic book. It's very human. And like everything is very, it all sort of like the serial killers can be like humorous. They could be outlandish, but I could totally see this in American culture. I could totally see this town. I could totally see these people. And I think the artist captures that perfectly. And panel by panel, I believe like nothing, uh, nothing like it shocks me and what happens, but it doesn't. Like the art portrays it perfectly. Like I can, uh, I can relate to what I'm seeing on the page to what I'd see in uh, an average AMC show, like Into the Badlands, Walking Dead, or right. But it's not like, but it's not like you're watching a news show of like a news coverage. Do you know what I mean? Like it's very, it's still a level of distance from it. Yeah, I understand that. It just, uh, it's not, it's not heavily detailed. It's exaggerated, but it's very Mm. realistic in what it portrays. Quick okay. question. Was uh, in the issue with Bendis, was he a co-writer in that issue? Because that definitely sounds like something that would come from him. I don't think so, actually. It probably had to get permission or something, They right? definitely or... probably, yeah. I'm sure that they had to talk to him <laughs> directly <Yeah. laughs> about it. But I don't know if he even co-wrote it. I'm not sure. That's a good question. Um, because uh, I was just wondering, because when I was reading the part that you and Matt had uh, read, I felt like it was definitely something he would uh, write because I've I've read a few of his stories, mostly Marvel stuff, but that's what he's associated with. I don't know. Has he ever, has he done anything other than uh, superheroes? 
well, if you look at his uh, his run on his uh, creative-owned book, Powers, which was just oh, adapted yes, to right, PlayStation, yeah. uh, there's a certain, I don't know if it's more than one issue, where he brings in Warren Ellis to do a yeah. sort of interview the characters there. Like, it's a it's this story arc involving Bendis mm-hmm. is a throwaway to what he does with in that issue with Powers with Warren Ellis. And it's very interesting because it shows, like, I saw it as a passing of the torch, and it's also of uh, Josh Williamson's understanding of Bendis as a writer and as a person. And it's very respectful and it's very honest, but it also shows, like, again, like, this is a surreal book. Like, this could be a real thing. Like, as Powers was, uh, Powers is based in real life. If there were superheroes, this is based in real life. If there was an entire town based on serial right, killers, uh-huh. like there's a very strong believability to the story. Yes. Versus, um, I mean, I think that superhero stories are getting to that point too now, where it's just like, oh, this just happens, and like you know, the Avengers are doing da and like whatever. But I think this is interesting because it so blurs the line between. I guess a person and a serial killer just like I guess when I say a person I mean like an average citizen to a serial killer or someone who has killing tendencies or whatever so there's just like no moral compass whatsoever in the story and yeah thank you I think Amanda do you have any input yes Amanda as um, someone who's a newcomer yes. to comics. Well, as a newcomer to comics, I wasn't really sure what to expect with the artwork. I have read graphic novels and I know how the two can, the narrative and the artwork can work together. What I did appreciate about the artwork is that I didn't feel like it was telling me how to feel. Mm. Like while I was reading Warren's dialogue, I don't think that the lighting changed all that much. And so it wasn't casting him in a negative light. And I felt like the artwork gave me the room to make my own opinions about the characters. And it also didn't characterize them as one thing or another. And I think it made me understand the comic a lot better. So I think for newcomers, the artwork was very accessible. That's actually really interesting. So it's almost like it transcends what a lot of mainstream film does in terms of how to make you feel like you know if two people are talking and there's like a swell of music it's like oh they're gonna kiss and it's gonna be awesome yeah and it tells you it kind of informs you how to feel about it right or there's like one side of the screen will be light and one will be dark or one will be in white clothing and one will be in black clothing and you you kind of had have your assumptions made for you and that's what I really liked about this as a newcomer is I felt like I was allowed to kind of navigate my own way through the story and through the characters. I like that. I think that that's really interesting because I don't know if every reader would feel that way about reading this comic but I I think I agree with you Amanda that it does give you a lot of agency in terms of just like giving you information and kind of doing what you will with it which might also explain why they haven't answered a lot of the questions yet because it's kind of like this weird like a very I don't want to say selfish but a very like individual experience for Mm -hmm. each reader being like oh like we're like we even just discussed it you know we all have not necessarily different opinions but kind of altered versions of how we see how the story is going so that is great that's a good answer you should host the next one. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right. So anybody else want to say anything about the art? No? We're all set? Yeah? Okay. I'll stop the segment then.
going right now. It's the last segment and we're doing character analyses. Just a brief character analysis and then some closing thoughts on Nailbiter. All right. So today we're going to use Susan Batson's truth as we have in other podcasts for character analysis. We're going to talk about uh, public persona, need and tragic flaw. Public persona is the mask you present to other people. The need is what you feel internally and the tragic flaw is the dissonance between the two. Okay. So Jonathan, <laughs> take it away. All right. Well, with public persona, it reminds me of a scene from the comic where Warren is in town and he's meets this very beautiful girl and he tries to chat her up but she knows who he is and she spits in his face but I think if I don't know how to say it <laughs> take your time I, I'm, I'm trying to, to think when it comes to public persona I think that if if I had run into Warren mm-hmm. on the streets I I don't know if I would recognize him, but then again, I probably I probably would recognize him, but I'd probably avoid him. But I don't think I would spit in his face, mostly because I know it's rude. And I know Warren, <laughs> I know Warren's done some pretty bad things, but then again, I could say this. I don't know if I should say this, but we're all human. We all make mistakes. But then again, Warren made a but pretty that's, big but mistake. That's the thing. Like you you're saying this from a standpoint of like under you've already gotten to, like you've read this series and you're already kind of on board with him being an anti-hero like this woman yeah. didn't know anything about that she only knew the person that she saw in the news yes that's that's true and was just like well fuck you don't judge a book by its cover yes that, I think that's the lesson. That is that is what public persona <laughs> Except is. Except you should it's pick like, up Nailbiter for its covers because they're fantastic. That's, that's true. Yes, that is fair. So yeah, I guess that, it's interesting that you bring that up specifically because the public persona in that sense is that Warren's just the nailbiter. Like mm-hmm. he's one of the buckaroo butchers and that's what the woman saw. But it's so funny because when he's telling that story, he's just talking about how nervous he is about talking to a pretty lady after not talking to one for so long. And like, I guess that kind of expands to how he behaves uh, with Crane or with anyone whenever he saves someone or doesn't kill someone. Like internally, it's very he has a need to be I don't even know if he needs to be understood. He might feel like he needs to be absolved a little bit. I get that. And it's one of those things. Uh, I think Warren is actually the most fascinating character in the uh, in the entire series. And you can see it in many things. Like he, he does want to be redeemed, but he also has his moments, especially in the... I think one of the most interesting things is in the first arc where he uh, he's like... I. I don't know how he puts it, but he kills the cows. And you see that moment where he's in glorious bliss, just killing the yeah, cows. Like, yeah, totally. That's how he gets uh, his fit. His rocks off to say <laughs> about killing. Uh, he just, he he's trying to blend in as much as possible. He's trying to re reclaim the relationships he's had, the life he has. And it's, if you read the novel, he's inability to call Sheriff Crane anything but pretty bird. Like he... He he truly does love her. Like he loves her for, with everything he has, and it's it's sad. Whatever that might be, but yeah, he can't he can't develop anything like past the nail biter because that's that's mm-hmm. who he was. Just like Beauty and the Beast. How? How? Right? No. Because the beast was like, he was turned into the beast. Yeah, but the same with, can't we argue the same with Warren? Yo, he ate people's fingernails and then murdered them. Okay, now wait. Now we don't know what, what, wait, wait, hold on. We don't know why or how Warren became the nail biter so far, correct? But he still did what he did. Yes, and the 
beast still didn't do anything except yeah. become a beast. Yeah, okay. he literally you know just what? hold up in I, his castle I, and I talk re- to his <laughs> objects. <laughs> I retract everything I said. <laughs> I, I think I know what, where you do were you going with it. Do you know what I was it. trying I, to get at? I think at? so. Okay. But the beast didn't do any. Like, the beast's public persona was also that of, like, a monster. So people thought yes. that he was going to hurt people. Mm-hmm. And the nail biter is a more complicated version of that because he actually did hurt people. But then again, the beast would never have hurt his own people just like warren said he would never hurt any of his own but the people. beast didn't hurt anyone okay i get it <laughs> i'm sorry i'm very passionate about beauty and the beast <laughs> matt and matt's like one of those people who's gonna or has already been on that app that links people who love disney together oh for i thought you were talking about the tinder app <laughs> no it's, it's like tinder app but it's for people who love disney and Guys, he's really uh, about it let's stop talking about my love life uh, let's move on with the story okay well we were talking about the nail biter and crane's love story so it made sense yeah (laughs) can Um, i put us back on track yes please thank you thank you amanda (laughs) thanks i think back to your reference of the beast but i think that they have a similar need in that they want to be seen as more than what the public knows them as and when you become a serial killer like the 16 in the comic book they have their names retracted and it's just what they do like the nail biter like that's all he is and i think his need is just to show people that a he can be so many different things and b that we can be like him too in the scene where finch is trying to interrogate him Warren is really antagonizing him because he's also killed someone, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's a need to show that he's human, but also that we're human as well. Right. That's really interesting. Again, another very smart thing. Yeah, slam dunk. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. The mimosas talking. (laughs) 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 All right. So I guess that settles it for Warren. Should we look into... Can we look into... uh... (laughs) This is kind of just my own imagination going, but I kind of thought I was seeing something between Finch and Carol. Carol, as in no, not. Oh not, God, I keep messing Crane. them up. Sorry. Crane. Yeah, Finch Carol and Carol. Have limbs. I thought we were about to bring on, like some homoerotic. <laughs> no, some no, serious OTPs right now. Yeah, it's OTP. Finch and uh, Crane because yeah. they have been getting pretty close. When they first met, they. Uh, you know, she told him to keep his distance with this town, and now they're working side by side, and he's staying here even longer than he's supposed to. Maybe, I, so, I don't know, probably something, nothing will happen, but I don't know. I feel like they're getting too close for comfort. I like their <laughs> friendship, though. Yeah, I like their friendship, too. I ship I doubt friendship. any. <laughs> yeah. I, ship I think it. they're mostly just workers. They're both, like, they're trying to solve it for different reasons, because mm-hmm. Crane never got her, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Her, uh, her closure on... Uh, why Warren became the nail biter, totally. why she left her, like she had to abandon her daughter hmm. to become that, like become yep. this thing. And she just, she just wants answers. Whereas Finch, Finch killed a man. Like he's going on trial. He has nothing else to live for. And his best friend just called him. And was like, I got this mystery. You need to come solve it. Like come over. Yeah. Like this is like just, it's very much a literal lifeline of just like, 
you're you're gonna like he obviously obviously carol didn't know that finch was trying to kill himself but they all have selfish reasons for being there Mm -hmm. there wasn't a history between finch and the fbi agent was there because when she first yeah because when she first showed up she seemed to have known him she was actually shocked that he was there i think she knows him because he was probably redlined in the sense that he they were supposed to keep an eye on him before the trial and he was probably going to kill himself before the trial mm. but instead he ends up in the the serial killer capital of the world. Yeah. I don't know if this would be the same in the comic books but um usually the FBI will employ army interrogators to interrogate people right, of interest. Yeah, so too. she may have known about him on a case that he had killed someone so gotcha. that could be. Very good insight. Connection. Yeah, everyone wants to date amanda right now (laughs) 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 okay but i mean i'm actually kind of interested in doing a analysis on crane as well because her public persona as you said matt was like she's toughened up she had to pretty much sack up and do her job and she's done a great job of doing it sack up is my favorite term (laughs) yeah she had to sack up and um but then i think that um you guys will get a chance to read the third story arc probably, but it really goes in depth. Of it, it shows her as a girl who's just kind of into a guy, you know, just very into someone. And, you know, there are petulant elements to it. And she's also like, why would he leave me? Like, I loved him. And it's like, it shows a different side of her. And I think that her need might be still that kind of teenage girl who's just like, what did I do? And it's kind of what you were saying about how she needs closure with Warren but it's so it's such an I don't know how to explain it it's like it's such an adult problem because even though you have this weird thing that kind of doesn't make sense this emotional thing that you want to be resolved where you're just like when you're 16 or whatever and you're like why did you leave me like you want to have that conversation but it's already so past that that you're both adults and things have already happened and now he's the nail biter and not just Warren her boyfriend so it's kind of it's weird like, I think that that makes her very biased when it comes to Warren, but then she still tries to do her job. I don't necessarily think she's biased towards Warren because she showed a Warren because she sort of treats him like crap. And yeah. not, like, that's what I mean. She's just, she's just, she does sort of take it out on him. But that's what I mean, though. No, I, and I understand completely. And it's one of those things where she, uh, she doesn't understand and she, she wants to understand and that's why she so willingly goes along with all these searches with carol with finch like with warren like she wants to know like how did you get me to this point how did you get our daughter to this point like she she needs answers and she's not going to get them unless she goes along with it but she also knows like you know i'm i'm the sheriff i can't i can't blur the line but then she does blur the line and it's one of those things like i personally find her to be the most human character in the entire series mm. because she's like she has to, to like pick parts of herself to show like she she knows when to be the officer and she knows when to be the mother she knows when to be the like the abandoned lover like she she's all over the place but i i love it you would Shut up, Kay. <laughs> Do you think she still has feelings for him? No, I shouldn't say that. Yes, obviously. I mean, obviously, <laughs> but I think she has feelings for him for the wrong reasons. Mm, I think explain. because they had the baby together, she feels that maybe she 
does maybe she maybe she feels that she has to give him another chance because he's the father of their child who now from what we can tell is possibly on the verge of becoming the next buckaroo butcher but i think that she knows better than to trust warren even a little bit to be a father ever like she knows that like i'm sure that in the same way that everyone feels like they want to tell someone a secret just because they want to. I think I'm sure she wants to tell Warren, but the logical part of her is like, no, what would that even do? Because he would probably try to fit that role as a father too because he's trying to fit the role as a reformed killer or whatever. And she's just like, no, I don't. Like she doesn't, she's not looking for a father out of Warren at all. I think it really is just, in my opinion, I think it's just that she has like a soft spot for him. She could also be trying to figure out what changed him, not only for her own closure, but if she figures out what turned him into the nail biter, then she has a shot at saving her own daughter. She already sees that she, that Alice is seems very detached. She right, doesn't really yeah. care when Hank and Robbie, Robbie yeah. are killed. They were just like, yeah, they deserved it. Yeah, yeah, and they were killed in brutal ways. One committed suicide. You don't naturally have or think you would have that kind of reaction. And so I think she sees her daughter slipping. Mm. And to save her, she might want to get closer to yeah. Warren. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Oh, I was I was going to say, Amanda, do you think that she'll still have feelings for him after she finds out why he did what he did? Or do you think she'll just, you know, I found my answer. I don't need you anymore. I can finally be at peace with myself. I think she would have feelings for him because once you find the reason why someone acts the way they act you kind of start to understand that it's not their fault, that it's not them as a bad person. It's that there was some circumstance that made them that way. Right. And if you, and if you honestly, like, it's also one of those things that I don't want to, I don't want to say that like they're, they have a abusive relationship or anything because they're not even together or anything, but it is kind of, it parallels that in the sense that sometimes you know for whatever reason without sense you're going to care about someone and if for if crane if it was as easy as just finding an answer for crane to kind of stop having feelings for someone she would have already done it she would have already found a way like she would have made it logical to herself and been like yeah this is not gonna work so bye but because they're already still or not even already there are still feelings there I think that Amanda's right that even with the answer, if anything, it'll just kind of make her feelings almost justifiable because it's like, oh, okay, because there was a reasoning behind it. It's not just madness or like it's not just you killing people. And that's really interesting because she's in a position where she's supposed to be the law. She represents the law and has to follow these rules. And it's great that she is kind of like that, I guess, the closest we can get to a moral compass. But she... Yeah, that's her Achilles heel, is that she has feelings for Warren still, and there's no closure there, and there never will be. But that's okay, because I'm sick that way, and I want them to be Do you just, a- just suffering <laughs> in their love for each other. Do you ever think that this will come to an end, this story? Like, I feel like this is one of those stories that can go on for a while. Do you see this ending? I don't know how soon? it could end. That's why I'm, like, confused and excited, but also angry. It's, it makes me <laughs> feel a lot of things. <laughs> But that's a good question. I don't know. I don't even know. I would almost be disappointed if it was just like a cult or something. Yeah, it's it's like at this point, I'm like, what is it? I think that's the thing. And I hate to put this out there, but there's that's the thing with a lot of image books. Like there's a lot of books that like they have a determined like end in the mind. But like look at books like uh, Morning Glories or 
you do look at Walking Dead or like you look at Invincible and like they have uh you're like, oh man, I know exactly where this is going. Oh my god, wait, the end of the arc happens and you don't know. And I think that's the coolest thing about Nailbiter is that it, it fits exactly with the publisher it's with. It fits exactly like in its themes of like mystery and horror. Like you're always you're always guessing and you're always like, All right, I know exactly where this is going, but you don't. And you want to keep reading, and it brings you in each time. And I think that's that's one of the most enjoying things about it, as well as with the characters. You never know where they're going to go as well, because you don't know enough about them. Yeah, I think that Nailbiter does a really good job of withholding the right amount of information. Because, or at least for me, that's also a very subjective experience. But there are a lot of comics where I'm like, yeah, okay, I, I figured that character out. And then it's just about... But that's what I love about Nailbiter. It has me wanting more. Mm-hmm. I want to read the next issue. And yeah. I think that's very key for any comic to have. Yeah, exactly. It has to keep you addicted to <laughs> the drug that is comic books because every issue is only like 23 pages and you're like, wait, what? Oh, God. <laughs> now now like, I have to wait what? a whole nother month. Yeah. <laughs> or like, or you can do what I do, which is just wait and just <laughs> buy the trades for $10 because yes, then... image is amazing mm. that way. But okay, so I guess that wraps up everything. Does anyone have any final thoughts on Nailbiter or any suggestions to anyone who might want to read it or um, any negative opinions about it even? I think it's actually a really good book if you're trying to get into comics and you don't care much for superheroes type of stuff, which mm. the majority of comics builds up, then this is this might be a good read for you. Mm, cool. Glad I chose it. <laughs> <laughs> this is right down your alley if you like horror books or if you like mystery books. It's also it's also one of those books like you uh if you want to tell someone, all right, like you wanna read a comic as you said, like this could be the first comic you read. Like it's a it's a great opening arc to like experiences with uh, visual storytelling where it's not just like, oh, you're in a movie, you're watching what's going on. Like you have to experience it like with words, with pictures. Like there are panels without words that have just uh, evoke as much Mm -hmm. emotion and like interest as they do with words. Like uh, it fully engages you and it's a great series to be a starting out book. That's really interesting because I never would have identified it as an introductory series before. But I, I wouldn't until we actually talked about this and sat on this podcast. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and Amanda, as someone who is, it is an introductory comic for you, does this make you want to read other comics or are you just kind of like, oh, okay. Like, no, I mean, I really liked it and I didn't expect to. I had always had the assumption that it was about a superhero and there's very common arcs and you can almost always guess how they end. And I'm actually glad to hear that it goes up to 18 because I have more to read now. And I really appreciated after having read graphic novels that are mostly about trauma and they use the visual and the narrative to kind of tell a story because there is no right way to tell a traumatic story. And I like the fact that this wasn't really a traumatic story. It was just a story about a town. It was very human. And the artwork went along with that and kind of let you make your own assumptions about it. So I'm very pleased with my first experience. (laughs) Yay, that's so good to hear. Because I, again, you know, as I started off this podcast, uh, I chose Nailbiter because I didn't think that it was getting nearly enough attention. I actually got to talk to Josh Williamson um, when I got his signature at uh, New York Comic Con. And he was just saying, yeah, like, you know, Mike Henderson and I, you know, just like doing it. And Mike doesn't think that anyone cares about this series. And I was like, I care so 
so much. Please keep making more forever. But it's interesting because, you know, I'm really glad that the three of you today um, had such insightful things to say about it because, you know, I think that it's one of those comics that should be getting a lot of attention and is and is not getting enough attention. But yeah, alrighty, I think that's all we got here for this episode covering the series Nailbiter. All the characters super damaged and super underrated, as is this series. I can't even think of a comic or anything that resembles this story, which is so awesome to see in the world of comics right now, especially since, you know they're blowing up in the movie business right now but you know nailbiter by josh williamson and mike henderson check it out uh for any additional information you can check out our website www.comicsverse.com we're on all social media platforms remember to download all the podcasts because we're amazing uh we're gonna go around and say our names again because why not i'm Kay. i'm matt I'm Jonathan. I'm Amanda. And we don't have anyone to say our our outro line. Justin, please tell us our outro line, even though you don't know anything about Nailbiter, but who cares? Um, Well, hey, the outro lines don't necessarily need to be about the podcast in question, but I will go with, as I did with the last Sausage Fest podcast when all men interviewed Greg Rucka, I will go with (laughs) Kathy's most famous, famous Comics Verse sign-off, which is, don't put Comics Verse in a Comics hearse. We're still alive, people. You're welcome. Listen to our podcast. Bye.